Kings chapter 13. Camp Twikatani, and that actually means meeting place. I got a t-shirt. That's where uh, we held our camp services. That was just reading the letter, just stirs memories, and I'm familiar with some of those names. Brother Thomas and, or Thompson and Godfrieda, they pastor a, what is called a bush church. It is not in the city. These are people that live in the bush, live off the land for the most part. Um, fairly primitive, but not so primitive. They still have internet. It's kind of wild. You go there, you see these huts, and, but the electricity is coming from somewhere, and they, there you go. They got a TV inside this hut. Like, what on earth? But uh, just, just a marvelous experience, and they are reaching people. Call, should we call them? Uh, yes, yes. And you can text them. I get a text from uh, uh, Brother John's uh, youth pastor on this app called WhatsApp. That's kind of cool. I should text him now. It's 1230 midnight for them. Hey, how you doing? Turn your live stream on. Check this out. So, Anyways, what a blessing. Amazing work over there. All right. Uh, oh, I'd like you to go ahead and find Jeremiah chapter 5 as well, if you'd mark that. Jeremiah chapter 5. So I'm getting started a little bit early, and that's good because... Uh, at the end of the service, uh, we're going to have a special word of prayer for all of our officers that are here anyways, deacons and trustees and even the financial board. Uh, we didn't do that last Sunday. I think that'd be appropriate thing to do. Uh, also, there is a meeting, a trustees meeting after the service. Brother Tracy, I do have a key for you, unless you found yours. All right. Okay. All righty. Well, if you're able to stand, let's look at uh, 2 Kings 13, verse 20 and 21. This is, uh, this is the end of our teaching and preaching on Elisha for a while. Actually, we've had a long break here with, through the holidays, but just an amazing character in the Bible. I like character studies. I, I feel like I can draw quicker. I can find Bible application from characters than I can just the epistles even. The epistles can be work at times, but praise the Lord God had all of these characters in the Bible to help illustrate New Testament truth. And we can combine those and we can learn the word. Anyways, verse 20 and 21. And Elisha died and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. And it's like the narrative leaves and moves right on to something else. But as you're reading 2 Kings, it is important to note that it's a pri primarily it's a study on the nation of Israel, the northern tribe. The Chronicles gives a greater emphasis to Judah, the southern tribe. Now, they're both mentioned as you read through. But the narrative is about the split country of Israel, the northern 
and southern kings, primarily about the northern. And we find that uh, two men of God were used to, we could say, preserve the northern tribe. They were the salt that the northern tribe needed to, uh, to stay in existence. Because it won't take long now. Things go down fast for Israel. It, it won't be long, and they will be absolutely dispersed. They'll be taken captive by their nations, and they are, there will be no nation of Israel. Now, Judah will still be operative for another nearly 100 years, but not the northern tribe. Anyways, a little extra. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We pray that the Holy Spirit would teach us now. There is a lot more than what I'm going to share tonight, but I do pray that what I do, what I deliver, may the Spirit of God lead, guide, and direct, and may everybody in the room uh, have an ear to hear from your Spirit, from your Word. May our eyes be opened that we, as David said, would behold wonderful things out of the Word of the Lord. I pray, Father, that Uh, You bless this meeting, this congregation. These folks have assembled together, Lord, because they have a heart to be around your people and around your book. And we pray for those on the live stream as well. Lord, I think of Brother John Hine. I know I just, I heard he broke his collarbone, and I pray that you'd help him and heal him and strengthen him. Help us to look to be a blessing. And I think of John Sheets, Lord, who's struggling with vertigo. And I know Deb Wilhoyt uh, was ill, and I pray for her health. And we've got a list of people uh, that are either ill or they shouldn't be out in weather like this. And we pray, God, give them grace, strength, and encouragement. And if they are watching, I pray this would be a blessing to them. We sure love you. Thank you for so great a salvation. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right. So this dead feller is thrown on the bones of Elisha, revives and stands upright. Just an amazing, amazing passage of Scripture. And it's like, that's it. It moves right on. I want to pull out about three things here from verse 20 to 21. Elisha, the man of God, uh, served his generation, as the Bible says about David. He fulfilled his course. He died as far as we know, he died, of, he died of an illness, but he died doing the will of God. It wasn't as though he died outside of the will of God. He had been fulfilling the will of God. It was honorable, but he died. And the first thing I'd point out, and I don't, this is going to be very surface, very simplistic, but I feel like it's still vital for you and I to remember. We look at, I've studied it, the and anybody that's ever taught, you know, you kind of get drawn into it more than the people that you're teaching to. It's like, wow. And he's, he's a real person, and a real man of God. He had a real effect. And even, even the king of Israel, who wasn't what we would call godly, had such a high regard, he came to him on his deathbed and wept over him. And now he's gone. And so the first thing I would say is the best of men are still mortal men. I know that sounds kind of bland, might even sound like a bummer, but the reality is as long as we live in these bodies, 
we're, we're not, it's not going to be here forever. We've got to remember that. Don and I went to the funeral of uh, Clarence Sexton. I, I would hold him up as a great man of God. And now he's gone. He's in heaven. Um, and that's just a reality. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. But we find that though Elisha died, uh, there's still, there is still something left to be said about him. Not just the fact that he was buried, he was buried. I believe that he had an honorable burial. I'm going to guess he was by the respect that the king showed toward him. He was buried. But just a quick thought there. The best of men are still mortal men. Number two, though, we're going to spend a little bit more time on this. Looking at verse 20 again. And Elisha died, and they buried him. And the word of God goes right on to tell us this. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. Now, nothing in Scripture is accidental. That's so important for us to grasp. Every, every phrase, every sentence, every, every comment is inspired by God Almighty, preserved with a purpose in mind. God wants us, and we know so much more took place, but God said when it comes to this historical record, I want you to know, I want you to know that when Elisha was died and he was buried at the beginning of the year for the Israelites, at the new year, Moab started sending bands of invaders into the land. Now that is significant for a, for a reason. It is no accident that the Moabites invaded the land after Elisha died. Not that Israel didn't have other enemies, but the Moabites. Now that's distinctive there. The, and it'll help you if you understand this, and I'm going to prove my point. The Moabites are a type of the flesh. I'll prove my point. But I guess I'm already ahead of myself. The reality is this, when, when you're no longer ruled by the Spirit, you are ruled by the that's about That's it. That's it. And when you are no longer under a spiritual influence... You will be under a fleshly influence. And the flesh always leads to bondage. Uh, Paul would say in Galatians, as a matter of fact, we'll be touching on it here in a couple weeks. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, uh, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary one to another. There's a battle there. You're either going to be led by one or the other. And the man of God, Elisha, now dies. And who comes in? God says, I want you to know the Moabites came in. So how, how do I prove my point that they're a fleshly people, that they're a type of the flesh? I think I can do that. First of all, their origins. Their origins. In Genesis, you don't have to turn to these verses, but in Genesis 19, verse 37, we find out that Moab, Moab is the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. Now that's about as fleshly you can get there. Moab, the nation of Moab, is a result of the incestuous relationship of Lot and his oldest daughter. As gross as that sounds, God allowed their descendants to continue on to teach us things. In the book of Psalms, God would say, Moab is my washpot. Now, <clears throat> that's fleshly. Their worship 
was absolutely hideous. They worshipped a god named Chemos, similar to Molech, in the sense that they sacrificed their children. As a matter of fact, there is a narrative in some of the following scriptures, I believe, we may have went through it already, where uh, there's a battle between uh, Israel and the Moabites, and the Moabites are losing, and the king of Moab takes his oldest son and slays him. But they worshipped wickedness. And then in Numbers 25, verse 1, some of you may be familiar with the name Balaam. The king of Moab hired Balaam to curse Israel. Couldn't get it done. God wasn't going to let Balaam curse Israel. So Balaam did something else. Balaam counseled Moab. And basically what Balaam taught Moab, though it's not literally said, it is implied by the actions that took place afterward, and God knew it, and Balaam paid for it. And that is, Balaam told the king of Balak, God won't curse those people. But if you can get those people to sin, God will judge them. And so, they went down and intermingled and invited them. Well, I'm I'm just kind of ad-libbing, but Some things took place. The Bible says they committed, uh, uh, what's the word here? Whoredom with Israel. Whoredom. So you can fill that in. That's Numbers 25, 21. In Judges 3, we discover they're one of the first nations to conquer Israel in Canaan land when Israel backslides and God allows them to conquer them. And there's a king, he's known as a very large king, named Eglon. That just sounds like a name of a large feller. And uh, we see that they rule Israel until Ehud comes to power. Something else about Moab. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, a family uh, uh, that lived in Israel, in Bethlehem, Judah... They were Jews. They were in the place of God's will. But things got difficult in the place of God's will. We could say it like this. It's like they had to bear a cross in the will of God because that kind of happens. A famine had come. And rather than bear a cross dealing with that famine, they heard that over in Moab there were good jobs, housing was cheap, And uh, they could hang out there. Uh, There were opportunities. And so Elimelech tells his wife, Naomi, and uh, the boys, hey, we're going to leave, but we're going to come back. Well, when you leave God's will, there's no promise you're going to come back. And Elimelech takes his family, and they go on into Moab. So what do they do there? Well, they end up getting in trouble is what happens. And Naomi gets heartbroken because she loses her husband and her two boys in Moab. Now, what's that all about? Well, Moab was the place to run when leaving God's will. And where do we run when we leave the leadership of the Spirit? We run to the leadership of the flesh. Come on now. 
And so Moab is a type of the flesh. When uh, Israel cried out to Samuel, we want a king, God said, I'll give you a king, but I'm not going to give you a king after my own heart first. I'll give you the king you want. And so they gave them this king who was a massive figure of a man, head and shoulders above everybody else, visibly formidable. His name is Saul. And he made it difficult in Israel. He brought some problems. Now, God used him, no doubt, to a degree. But they got the flesh. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I'd like to read that. Matter of fact, we're not super in a hurry right now. Take a look at Acts 20, 29. Acts 20, 29, the Apostle Paul says this to the pastors in Ephesus. He says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Now the key phrase is, verse 29 For I know this, that after my departing. Who was the spiritual influence on these people? Paul. He was the one. He was the bright and shining light, pointing them to Jesus Christ, of course. And he warned them that when I leave, get ready. Get ready. Grievous wolves. And what we get here, I I go back to Elisha. Elisha dies, and God says, I just want you to know now, reader, the Moabites came in. They'd already had issues in other areas with Syria, but now the Moabites, the bands of Moabites come in and begin to harass them over and over. And the application is so easy to grasp if you think about it. When you and I leave the spiritual influence that God has placed in our life, Uh, If we leave it, then we are going to be led by the flesh, ruled by the flesh, and the flesh will always end up bringing you into bondage, always. In some cases, spiritual influence leaves us, and we don't have anything to do about it. It was the will of God. God moves them on, or God takes them home, and so they're they're gone. But in other cases, hey, there are opportunities to, for us to remain under a positive spiritual influence. But if we choose to walk away, we're going to be influenced by something else. You know, there's a reason why some people who claim to be Christians don't go to church even though they could. Hello? Well, it's because it's not gratifying to the flesh if you go to the kind of church that preaches the Bible. All right, so spend a lot of time there. Now, by the way, how many of you could attest to this? And you don't have to raise your hands, but you can nod your head. That'll help me. How many of you are privy to a church where the pastoral leadership that was godly and spiritual, spiritual left for one reason or another, and the church immediately began to decline? I mean, I, I can think of a few right now in my brain. I, I can think of some. That just... It can happen. 
And so, that's very important that we get that. Now we move on to verse 21. So, I read it again, and Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. It was now a new year for them, and not good. Elisha's not there. Verse 21, and it came to pass as they were burying a man. Now the they there is questionable. My favorite author said the they was the Moabites. I rarely do I disagree with him. But he's mortal too. And I do disagree with him. And I'm going to give you the reason I disagree that the they were burying a man, that they is not Moabites. I'm going to just give you my opinion and you can take it for what, it, what it's worth. It says, And it came to pass as they were burying a man that behold, they spied a band of men and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. The reading appears that they did that in a hurry. Rather than finishing burying this guy, uh, they saw a band of men, fear struck in their heart, and they cast the man they were burying in a sepulcher. Here's, here's my opinion. I believe they were in a burial ground, number one. That's why they were burying a man near Elisha's sepulcher. I believe they were in a burial ground. Number two, if it's Elisha's sepulcher, they're Jews, they're Israelites. And that they, why would they be scared? And why did the verse just preceding that tell us that bands of Moabites were coming in? That's why I believe it was Israelites. Mr. Borum, I, this is just my opinion. But this is why I believe it's Israelites and not Moabites. I have never, I don't know as if I've ever disagreed with him. But on this one, I do. And it wasn't Moabites. Because they were afraid, and they saw the Moabites coming, and they wanted to get the body in, and they wanted to hide. That's what I get out of that. I, it, does anybody see something else? Okay. All right. I don't know how long this fella had been dead. I don't know if it had been a day or hours. Or a couple of, I don't know. I Usually they want to get the body and buried quickly, the Jews did. And so, uh, can you imagine being that guy? The dead, the dead man? His last moment of consciousness, he may be at home. And he sees the wife and kids, his friends are around. In and out of consciousness. And then he slips away. He's gone. I don't know if he got a glimpse of glory like Lazarus did or not. I don't know what all he got to see, but the next thing we notice here is his body lands on the bones of Elisha, and the Bible says the Bible says he revived, life came back into him, and he stood up. I wonder what that would do to the Moabites. Can you imagine if they saw somebody come up out of the grave? One more thing to give the Moabites before they take over completely. Let's show them a resurrected man. By the way, the world needs to know about a resurrected man. Because that is the answer. That is the answer. 
That's not what I'm... I mean, that's, I think that's pretty good. But that's not what I have down in my notes here. Uh, I just find it fascinating that God would let us know when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up. I shared this in the teacher's meeting probably four or five months ago or longer. Some of you may remember. I can't remember what I preached on last week, but maybe you don't either. So, uh, <laughs> it's, You're making me sound confident, honey. So that, All right. Anyways, uh, what do we get out of this? Well, I'm going to give you a, a statement here. And those of you that read, I think you could grasp this more clearly than those who do not read much. Sometimes contact with the godly dead is more influential to us than contact with the carnal living. That was long. I'll say it again. Sometimes contact with the... I know it sounds like we're going to have a seance here or something. What's going on here? No, 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 we're not. But in the text, contact with the godly dead is more influential than contact with the carnal living. Now, thank God there are people alive that uh, walk with God. They can help us in our faith and all of that. But there's a great reality that we cannot dismiss. We, we're privileged to live in a society of a lot of information. And that is, we have the records of many great men and women of God. We have their records, their writings, and their biographies. Let me say, uh, all that was left of Elisha was his bones. Often all that is left of great men of the past is their writings. Many of you are familiar with the Lutheran denomination. I know they have won AWOL from the faith. I'm just telling you, they have. If you're watching and you're Lutheran, I'm sorry, but it, the denominations won AWOL. When they started, a man by the name of Martin Luther got things straight when it came to the doctrine of salvation. He was a Catholic priest. But what turned the light on in his soul, ladies and gentlemen, was not, Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou in the fruit of thy womb. That was not what did it. Saying the Our Father prayer a hundred times is not what did it. And praise the Lord, I love that passage of Scripture. But going through these rituals that he went through as a Catholic priest, they, it, that is not what turned the light on. You know what turned the light on in his spiritual life? And this is just awesome. He got a hold of these writings by this man by the name of John Wycliffe. Now Martin Luther lived in the mid-1400s and around 1490 is when he uh, makes the big uh, confrontation and steps away from the Catholic Church and pronounces justification by faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. No other. That is Bible doctrine. But you know what turned his soul 
He got a hold of these writings that had been outlawed by the Catholic Church. He had a little rebel in him because rebellious people like to look at things that you're not supposed to look at. And he got a hold of these writings from John Wycliffe, who was a priest in England. Now, Martin Luther was in Germany. But they got a hold of these handwritten manuscripts that had been rewritten by John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe was a born-again believer. Yeah, he went through the order of the priesthood and all that, but he studied his Bible and he saw the heresy and the errors of, what, of the denomination he was involved in. He said, the Bible is the Word of God, and he, held up, he, he let the Word of God be the authority in his life and not anything else. And he began to uh, uh, make notes about uh, Romans and Galatians. In these books of the Bible, and people began to read these things, and their eyes were opened. And Martin Luther got a hold of that, and it set his soul afire. But he'd been dead for over a hundred years. But he being dead, yet speaking. Uh a turning point in John Wesley. Anybody ever heard of him? Two or three? And George Whitfield. Basically, we could say that the founders of the Methodist and Nazarene movement and that sort of thing. Uh, and again, at one time, these people were absolutely vigilant about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what led to their conversion? What led to their transformation? Yes, God used a group of people, the Moravians, to help influence John Wesley. But it was this journal by David Brainerd, about David Brainerd, not by David Brainerd, that they got their hands on. See, this fellow by the name of Jonathan Edwards, he was American. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, uh, his daughter and David Brainerd were supposed to get married. And Jonathan Edwards witnessed David Brainerd's godly life. And David Brainerd kept his journals of his prayer life, and it was absolutely unbelievable. He died when he was 30 years old. When he died, Jonathan Edwards read those journals, and he was moved in such a way, he was moved in such a way by those journals that it stirred his heart in prayer, and revival broke out in America. And, and we're all familiar with that, many of us familiar with the sermon he preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I mean, revival began to stir in Massachusetts area. All because of the what he read from David Brainerd. So he took David Brainerd's journal. He, re, he wrote those copies to put them in book form. <laughs> and Jonathan Wesley, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley got a hold of those things. And it set their soul afire. See, what we got to understand is this America, God used a revival to prepare America for the revolution. God did that. God did that. How did it start? Well, they, they were reading something 
about a godly man who is dead now, but they had his writings, and it stirred them. My mother-in-law picked up a copy of Asking and Receiving by John R. Rice when she first got saved. It stirred her so much, she wanted to see God do something, so she prayed and fasted. She said, this is what she prayed. They were going to Heather Hills Baptist Church. I can give you almost details here, uh, exact details. They were going to Heather Hills Baptist Church. She, and this is, it was not an independent Baptist like we are. They were a, like a general association of regular Baptists. She said, she told me, she said that they didn't have invitations hardly ever. And she said as long as her and Tim had been there, they'd never seen anybody come to the altar. They'd never seen anybody get saved. But her brother uh, was being influenced by uh, more of an, our type of ministry here. And um, gave her, he might, he might have been the one that gave her that book. Well, she read it and she, she really wanted to see God do something. So she prayed and fasted that God would allow her to see the, Allowed to see one person get saved on a Sunday morning in a church that she'd never seen anybody get saved at. For, I don't know, the year, two years she'd been there. So she prays and fasts two days. The next Sunday, wasn't just one, two people got saved, made public profession in that church. Now you can call that coincidence or something like that, but not her. Oh no. Well, what stirred her? I mean, it was something, she read something. She read something. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 5. Take a look at this passage here. Jeremiah 5, 5. I love this passage. Jeremiah 5, 5. I will get me unto the great men and will speak unto them, for they have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God. I like that. I'm not going to read the whole verse. That's where I wanted to zero in on. They have known the way of the Lord. Well, how do we get unto the great men and women of God? We still have their writings. And you know, there, in some cases, you can listen. There are recordings of some of these people from almost 100 years ago. It's pretty amazing to hear, to hear the voice of a Billy Sunday. To hear somebody who preached back in the 20s. It's just amazing. Sermon audio, you can get this stuff. You can listen if you're not a reader. But I'm just telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I, personally, my own personal experience, I have been absolutely revived and refreshed by men who've been dead for a long time. I have. George Mueller stirred my soul in prayer. Tozer, absolutely. I got a whole shelf full of them. Borum. Borum, <laughs> Dwight Talmadge, Charles Spurgeon, uh, Clovis Chapel. Some of these guys I'd never even heard of till other preachers that I enjoyed told me about them and said, you ought to read one of these. And Wow. What I'm just saying is this. It, there, we, we can be revived by people who have been dead a long time because they've left something behind and as odd as it seems here, they, they, it's just his bones, but God says, that's enough. I'm going to use it. Let me take you to Judges. If you've got a minute, you're getting tired. 
hang in here with me. Judges 13. This is, this is, oh, this is good. Now, I've shared this one before, but this is worth looking at again. Judges 13. Samson. That fella, he was muscular, I think. He was a man of God, but he did some weird things. I know it. I know it. But I want you to see this. Judges chapter 13. Now look at verse 24 and 25. Okay, just look at this. And for those of you that know where I'm going, just come on now. Act like it's fresh, okay? Just praise the Lord. We're looking at the Bible. But this ties together. Judges 13, verse 24 and 25. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And look closely. And the spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between what and what? Zorah and Eshtel. I wonder why God put that in there. God wants us to know where the spirit of God began to move Samson. I mean, where he began to feel the presence of God in his life in a way that he'd never known before. When he began to be aware of something beyond himself, the Spirit of God began to move him, strengthen him, enlighten him. Where was it between this Zor and Eshtel? Well, what's that all about? I mean, if if God leaves me there with nothing else, I'm, I'm kind of clueless other than the facts of the location here. But God doesn't leave me here, there because Scripture will interpret Scripture. Turn to chapter 16. Chapter 16. We come to chapter 16 and boy, Samson's going to die. Because the best of men are but mortal men. In chapter 16 and verse 31, after Samson dies and the Philistines' amphitheater collapses upon them, the Israelites go get his body out of the debris, and they go bring him back to this place. Look at verse 31. Then his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtil in the burying place of Manoah, his father. Well, now I've just learned something. Back in chapter 13, when I read where the Spirit of God began to move him, it was in a burial ground. Are you with me? Even those who knew this, that's just amazing. It's in a burial ground. Well, that's crazy. No, 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 no. Could it be as Samson walked through the burial ground... He reminisced on the faith of his fathers and the faith of his mother. Could it be? I think it's very reasonable. The fact is, though, that's where God said, that's where I moved him. And so what I'm just trying to tell you is there's there's a lot of spiritual power that is still left for us from men and women of God of the past, if we'll take advantage of it. I would never say, well, you're going to have to give up your Bible reading. That's foolish. But compliment your Bible reading with some of that stuff. It'll stir your soul. 
The first time I ever read Charles Finney's biography, I was about 19 years old. Charles Finney, unbelievable. I read his biography about his conversion and his call to the ministry and these unusual answers to prayer and how God stirred hearts. I was a 19-year-old. I hadn't even left Kingsley, Michigan yet. I remember reading that, and I remember being so stirred up about that. I went into the woods, and I remember thinking, I'm going to stay here in the woods and pray, and I want that, ex- I want that experience. And I remember talking out loud to God, and I was cautious. I was self-conscious. Lord, you know, just self-conscious. And I thought, well, Charles Finney did it, so I thought, I'm just going to forget about it. If there's somebody watching me in the woods, I'm going to go ahead and talk to God anyways. I mean, I remember just finally pouring it all out there. The influence of the godly after death. Take advantage of that. And I conclude with this. If you desire, if you desire to be a godly influence after you die, because the reality is, we may not see all the answers to prayer in our lifetime that we want. George Mueller had 10 men he prayed for in his lifetime to get saved. In his lifetime, nine of them got saved. But just a few years after he died, the 10th one got saved. And the reason that's recorded is because a man that knew George Mueller well found his prayer journal and saw those names. How do you leave that type of legacy, that type of influence? By living godly now, by living for the Lord now, by staying inspired now. If you desire an influence for Christ after you die, then live for him now. Father, bless the message. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Elisha. Thank you, Lord God, for the men and women who have passed the torch, but they've left a legacy. They have left a testimony. Like Abel, they being dead yet speak. Help us take advantage of these resources. Help us to learn your word and stay influenced by people who made an impact. Lord, bless our invitation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.